my one and only experience as uh, an academic occurred in the summer of 2005 at the annual Medieval Studies Conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I presented a sermon, or rather presented a, a paper on a sermon preached by a 15th century mystic and reformer named Jean Gerson. Jean Gerson's volumes of sermons in untranslated Latin are, even as we speak, gathering dust on the third floor of Hodges Library. But I pulled one of them out and spent a year translating it. And it was a, a powerful message of prayer and hope given at the Council of Constance in 1415 when the whole church was on the edge of a split and his sermon provoked a season of reform and renewal. And there, there was something sacred about sitting in my carol, slowly working through the words of this godly man's sermon. The text was 1 Peter 2. Studying a sermon gives you a, a sense for the heart of things, for what the preacher really believes, for what's going on in the community, what the thought world of the, of, of the community is. You know, had I finished my PhD, I was going to do a dissertation on sermons of an urban monk. The book of Acts gives us some incredible sermons from the early church. It's one of its most precious gifts. Uh, the sermon that we're considering today was given in A.D. 46, roughly 13 years after the death of Christ. And so really what we're in here is, is the headwaters of our faith when we, when we study the sermons of the apostles. It does take work to you know, study these and get something out of it. It was probably difficult for you to follow it just being read. It was for me, and I've studied it all week. We don't necessarily share the worldview of the audience. The rhetorical styles change over the centuries. They don't preach like we preach. The early church preachers weren't big on application. Uh, they kind of assumed you just do it yourself, so we have to work hard on that. But careful study of the sermons in the book of Acts are worth it. Uh, they're worth the effort because you really are getting down to the very words that birthed our faith. You might remember that old telephone game we used to play where you'd pass a message around and around and around. It was very different by the time it got to the end of the circle. Sometimes doctrine and belief can be that way, that it gets handed down, handed down, handed down, and sometimes it can get, you know, maybe a little bit off from what it originally was. So it's actually very helpful to kind of go back to the beginning and just remind ourselves, what, where did we start well, we are in the early stages of the first missionary journey here. Uh, after sharing the gospel on the island of Cyprus uh, with the Roman governor and converting him, probably starting leaving behind a church there, John Mark, Paul, Barnabas sailed north to a port in Galatia, southern Turkey. John Mark leaves the group at this point. Uh, we'll, we'll find out in Acts 15 that this created a relational rift between Barnabas and Paul. And so just like in normal life, even as God is working mightily, there's relational tension and conflict that they're having 
to work through. Well, they, they get off, they take the Via Sabas inland, they travel up the rugged Tarsus Mountains on the way to a, to a colony called Pisidian Antioch. It was a way up high in the mountains, about 10,000 people. It was called the Lake Country. It was the home to a massive temple to a god called Men Askenos, and then to another temple dedicated to the Emperor Augustus, who was called the Savior of the World. And there was a small but thriving Jewish community there that was holding on firmly to the law of Moses. And so Paul walks in with Barnabas, and as is the custom, uh, they are asked to speak at the end of the reading of the Law and the Prophets. And that would have been a very natural thing. Paul was trained as a rabbi. Uh, it, it, it was a very ordinary occurrence for a guest rabbi to speak. And so just to point out briefly that Paul's way of evangelism is to take the most normal, natural, simple opportunities that come up in the normal course of things. Uh, he's not inventing some brand new strategy. He's, he's following the customs and the roles that he would normally play. And I think that's helpful to remember even in our own evangelism efforts, that normally the, God will give us natural opportunities that emerge out of our normal rhythms and practices. Well, uh, Paul begins by reviewing Israel's history with God in verses 16 to 25. Uh, God chose Israel and made them great. God rescued Israel uh, from captivity in Egypt. God put up with them, I love that phrase, uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. God led Israel into the land of Canaan. God gave Israel leaders, judges, then the prophets, Samuel, and eventually kings like Saul and David. Now, that would have been pretty familiar to everybody in the audience today. It might be familiar to you if you've been in church for a while. What, what is the meaning beneath the history? What's the message beneath the history? Is that God loves you, that God loves us. That he looked down, he saw what sin had done to us, and he chose a particular people to start working his cure. That he pursued us, he came after us, he didn't give up on us, he rescued us. That's where the Christian belief begins. With a belief in a God who loves and pursues and doesn't give up on us. I have a dear friend that I met through swimming who's moved away. He's, um, he's dying now. And over time, we've become close enough to talk about faith. And he's made it very clear that he is an atheist. And he, he converted, he said, when he watched a Carl Sagan film series in the 70s. And that film series began with a, a famous saying. I remember it. The cosmos is all that was and is and ever will be. And uh, my friend is committed to that belief. And uh, now he's, he's dying in the, uh, alone. Christians do not believe that the cosmos is all there ever was, is, and ever will be. And when we recite a a liturgy like Paul begins his sermon with, that's what we're saying. 
It may sound like a lot of Sunday school history, and it is, but what we're saying is that there is a loving God who pursues his people. Now, our Jewish ancestors finished this history with David, and Paul goes on to tell the rest of the story. He says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul doesn't say much about the life and ministry of Jesus. He, he goes quickly to Jesus' rejection by his people. The rulers in Jerusalem, he says, fail to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. They asked Pilate to execute him. They laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. And he appeared to many witnesses, almost all of whom were still alive when Paul was saying this. Well, not only do witnesses testify to the resurrection, and again, notice how rooted this is in history, how rooted this is in the, in the belief that this really happened and people really saw the risen Christ. This is not coming out of some mythological uh, place. It's, it's written and spoken as history. But not only do witnesses testify to the resurrection, so does Scripture. And Paul now will go to three Old Testament citations that point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises to David. The first is Psalm 2, verse 7. God says to a Messiah-like figure, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The second scripture is from Isaiah 55, where God says that the promises made to David will one day bless his descendants. God says, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And Jesus is the ultimate blessing of David. And then the third scripture is from Psalm 1610, which prophesied that the Holy One of God would never see the final corruption of death. Paul brings the sermon to a close, and of course, the sermon probably was much longer than we're reading here tonight. We have a summary of it. And he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul describes the gift Jesus brings in two ways. First, Jesus has provided forgiveness for our sins through his death on the cross. What is our deepest need? It's forgiveness of our sin. And Paul is not talking about a get-out-of-jail-free card. Remember, the whole drama of Israel is behind this statement. He wants us to see that we are all Israel. We have all been enslaved to sin. We have all wandered aimlessly through the wilderness of life. We all need a spiritual homeland in which to rest. We've all rejected the grace of God. We've all turned against God in anger and put him on the cross. And so we need saving, we need rescuing, we need healing and belonging and a purpose. And all of that comes in this package of the forgiveness of sins. Paul then says that Jesus' gift sets us free from everything the law of Moses could not set us free from. What does he mean? Well, 
The cancer of legalism corrupts every religion. We just, as human beings, can't seem to help devolving into a work-based spirituality that becomes kind of a moral checklist. And the reason why so many people leave religion is it's just exhausting. In the mornings when I go over to swim practice, I, I, I've been listening to a particular speaker, and for a while I've enjoyed him, but then it just seemed like his view of the gospel went something like this. You are a horrible person. You ought to be in hell. Jesus saved you. And now you must work like crazy to keep him happy with you. And as I listen, I just keep thinking, I know what he's trying to get at, but is that the good news of the gospel? I always come away feeling sort of like this moralist challenge to push harder. I don't think that's the gospel. I think that's what the dear Jewish people were trying to do at this point, just trying to try harder. Sandy and I watched the, the Tiger Woods documentary and of uh, the great golfer, and it was okay. Actually, I didn't learn much about him. And the moral arc of the story is greatest golfer in the world, moral failure, everybody hates him, comes back, becomes the greatest golfer in the world, everybody loves him. And I thought, and the only only quote, they asked him how he was coping with it, and he said something about his putting game having the yips. And I thought, this is the American gospel. If you fail, we hate you. But if you win, we love you. That's the American gospel. That's what Jesus has freed us from. And so we... We go into the world, and I think it's so important to remember this in times like these that are kind of anxious. We go into the world loved, forgiven, chosen, beloved, and we move into whatever God calls us to move into out of that centering in the love of God that Jesus made possible because of the cross. Well, Paul concludes the sermon in the synagogue, he, he, as was uh, rabbinic speakers were prone to do. He loved to quote different uh, Hebrew texts, and so he quotes Habakkuk, and look, the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, I'm doing a new work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And then Paul says, don't miss it. He pleads with them, can't you see God is doing a new work right here in Jesus? Don't miss it. You'll regret it if you miss it. And as Matt read for us, most of them missed it and rejected the new work. And uh, Paul went on to the Gentiles. And so maybe what this sermon can ask us tonight is, have you embraced are you embracing the new work of God? And of course, first of all, the new work of God is always the old work of the gospel. It's always this, this fresh, forgiving grace that Christ made possible for us. Are you embracing that? 
Have you ever have you ever embraced it and become a follower of Christ? You can do that right now just by putting your trust in him, asking him to forgive you of your sins, asking him to pour out his spirit on you and come into your life and make you the person that he wants you to be and sharing that with someone and becoming a part of the family of God and growing in faith. Or maybe the new work is you going back and embracing that again. Maybe you have gotten back on that performance treadmill. Or maybe it's it's embracing a new way to know God or a new way to serve God, a new way to love God. Could it be, even as we go through this pandemic and we come out on the other side, I just have this feeling that everything's going to be different, that the church is going to be different, that all souls is going to be different, that there's a new work. Well, Will you embrace that new work? I trust that you will. Father, thank you so much that we don't live in an empty cosmos. Thank you that four or five, however, thousand years ago, you looked down and you chose a man and you chose a people to love and shape and, and through whom to save and heal and rescue us. And here in 2021, we can step into that story and we can look at what your son did on the cross and we can be forgiven of our sins and saved and healed and transformed and given purpose and meaning and life and freed from the performance treadmill and have hope and joy even in turbulent times. Lord, wherever this touches us tonight, help us to embrace the new work of the gospel. In your name, amen.